Time for the latest episode of our year-long quest for myself, your co-host Lorcan Mullen, and my other co-host Simon Cross. Through the show, let me tell you something to go through every match that we can get our hands on that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. Yet again, we're staying in the land of the rising sun for our fifth episode. We are in Japan, but we are not in all Japan, New Japan, or the UWF. This time. Well, we are in All Japan, but we're in All Japan Women, as we will be having our first female wrestling match. Uh, we're entering the world of Joshi, uh, which is the term collectively used usually for female wrestling in Japan. And All Japan Women is actually a promotion that is actually older than All Japan Pro Wrestling by a year or so. Power um, to you, sisters. Yeah. So the match that we'll be talking about now is takes place in 1985, I believe. And it's between Jaguar Yokota and Lioness Asuka. That's, we're pronouncing it as it's pronounced with the current uh, wrestler formerly known as Kana. And of course, Joshi is something that's becoming a bit more prevalent in the United States. First with the appearances of a few uh, wrestlers, Kairi Hojo, then later Kairi Sane, Io Shirai, and I think someone else first appearing in Lucha Underground. Um, and also... Chikara Pro Wrestling, a uh, few for quite a lot of the King of Trios brought in some uh, great Japanese Joshi wrestlers like Akira Hakotu and Niko Sakamoto, I think her name is, uh, the one that was recently in the Mae Young Classic. And we now have three of the best uh, current female Japanese wrestlers signed to WWE contracts, either in WWE or NXT, with Asuka, Kairi Sane, and Io Shirai. Um,. And before then, the only other ones that we were briefly in the mid-90s, we had an arrivals of the likes of Bull Meccano and Aja Kong wrestling Alundra Blaze in the WWE Women's Division. Um, Simon, what sort of level of knowledge did you have about Joshi or, or female wrestling, at uh, female Japanese wrestling at this time? Uh, precious little prior, prior to us starting this. Um, I'd only ever watched women's wrestling that was in like, WWE. Pretty much, I'd never like really broadened my horizons beyond that. It's all part of the uh, smorgasbord um, that Dave Meltzer is taking us through mm. in terms of like the varieties of different styles and such. We'll get to see. Um, it's really interesting the way um, I'm going to like jump ahead a little bit in terms of like it's talking about the match itself. It's really interesting to see, much like the Japanese men's style, women's wrestling in Japan seemed like ahead of what I expected women's wrestling. Well, what I saw in women's wrestling in like the attitude era, not mm. to like slight um, those performers that they did what they could with the uh, scripts they were given to an extent. Hey, here we go. But it was just, it was just a really intense physical match. And if yes. you'd have told me I was going to watch an eighties uh, women's wrestling match, that wouldn't, this wasn't what my preconception was. Mm. Well, I was aware of this style of wrestling through Bornacano. This is one of the advantages of being a fair bit older than yourself, Simon. So I saw this the first time around. Uh, Alundra Blaze and Bornacano having a match at SummerSlam 94 that was really after Bret Hart versus Owen Hart in the Steel Cage match, which is a future 
five-star match that we'll cover in this podcast series was easily the best match of the card that I could recall. And Bull Nakano just seemed to be on this other level, not just against Alundra Blaze, but against the male wrestlers. She was doing all these crazy innovative moves, like the uh, variant of the sharpshooter that Paige turned into her finisher briefly. And, and Bull Nakano is a, a frequently cited inspiration to Paige. And I think... Um, you mentioned, was it Beth Phoenix wore a Bull Nakano, a Bull Nakano shirt at the at Evolution the pay-per-view. pay-per-view. And she has been sized. I wouldn't be surprised if she would be a future WWE Hall of Famer since they do reserve at least one spot for a female competitor. And unfortunately, until very recently, females weren't given much in the way of Hall of Fame caliber careers to be um, celebrated afterwards by the WWE. And so hence you have people with, you know, Fine workers for their time, like um, Jacqueline and Ivory, who maybe didn't have the sort of career that if they were a male, they would have been given the same sort of recognition. And that's not a slight to them at all. It's just the way of what was required of them. So I knew I knew through Bull Nakano that women's wrestling matches could be one of the most exciting things on the card, if given the opportunity. Like when... After Alundra Blaze left in early 96, um, before she was supposed to have a scheduled match against Aja Kong at Royal Rumble 96, and then famously dropped the WWF Women's title in the bin on an episode of Nitro. Um, There was this aware... And then when Sable and Jacqueline brought it back, and then it was, you know, the next champion after those two was Deborah, who won it by losing an evening gown match because she had nice tits. That was basically... (laughs) Shawn Michaels' logic behind that, making that decision as commissioner of the WWF. Um, it was, you know, that you had good quality performers within that time, like Trish Stratus or Lita or um, Molly Holly and the like, but they would be successful in spite of what the WWF really wanted their women to do, not because of what they wanted them to do. Yeah. Um, whereas... I was aware at that time, because I was getting smartened up, as it were, there's, like, these lists of must-see matches on things like the Death Valley Driver forums, and, like, right up at the top amongst, like, the best matches of the 90s, and also referenced in Power Slam, were matches involving people like Manami Toyota, uh, Dynamite Kanzai, um, Akira Hokotu, I believe, as well. And these are all names that we will probably be discussing later on, because there are a fair few... Uh, Joshi matches in the two sort of hot periods of Joshi wrestling which are like 1985 to 86 1984 to 86 which is what we're covering now and then there was a second wave of popularity around 1991 to 1995 <clears throat> so this match is really like slap bang in the middle of that first period then. yeah yeah absolutely I mean one of the people involved in it Linus Asuka is basically uh, one of the top stars in all of wrestling, like as far as a pop cultural figure goes. She was so popular with her tag team partner, the Crush Gals with Jigusa Nagayo, that she was a pop star, literally a pop star in Japan. And the other thing that's really interesting, let's go more into this actual match itself. The crowd makeup is almost entirely female. And that's where it was. I mean, like, and you listen to the crowd, it's very clearly of that. Higher pitched frequency, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. It's like um, when you watch Shawn Michaels, uh, like early nineties. It's the same kind of crowd response, except you don't have the men um, drowning it out with their like booze. Yeah, all the Von Erich era of the Texas wrestling. Uh, I mean, Jim Cornette says that like back in the day, wrestling crowds used to be fairly split, and then just a bunch of hairy dudes turned up in the nineties and. 
women weren't really allowed anymore. It became the He-Man Woman Haters Club for the longest time. <laughs> it's really only recently, you know, Leeds was probably the only exception of that WWF era that was a female wrestler that appealed to girls as much as she were boys through her sort of tomboy look. Yeah. Like, I remember when Lita uh, was tagged in in the fully loaded six-person tag match with the Hardys against TNA and Trish Stratus, which just that tag team name says it all, that when she would enter the ring, there was a cheer quite similar to, again, of that sort of frequency that you see in this Yokota Asuka match. Like, the women in the crowd suddenly had someone... Because if you were a girl that was into wrestling, you kind of, I guess at that point, kind of needed to be a bit of a tomboy to be accepted almost by the other boys, and you know. Because it's hard to sort of empathise with the women when they're being overtly sexualised like they were in the Attitude Era. Which is what Lita was being uh, done with the thong, the visible thong on display and everything, but she still had that, you know, the the redhead to the the blonde and everything. Yeah, and and the rock chick sort of look. Um, But let's try and, let's keep it away from WWE as much as we can and actually talk about the, 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 the era we're in. Um, also, what's very interesting is at this point, it's, it is a mostly female crowd. And during the second wave of popularity in the early 90s is when finally it starts to achieve, get sort of a mixed audience. But like in 1985, as a male Japanese wrestling fan, to say you're into all Japan women or Joshi in general would be like a boy saying that he was into Barbie dolls. There was that stigma attached to it. And so that's why it was very much kind of, you know, do you think that's um, segregated between these two lines? Do you think that's due to like the traditionalist nature of Japan? I think there's a traditionalist nature in the 80s towards everything. It wasn't like the 80s was some great enlightened era in the <laughs> Western civilization where we were trying to get girls to be on, you know, girls stuff not to be all pink and everything. We've got another 25, 30 years of that in the West as much as anything. But I get where you're coming from. Yeah. There are aspects of Japanese culture that is uh, more conservative than the rest than many other parts of the world. You know, they they're very isolationist policies towards immigration which continue on to this day and it's a fucking powder keg waiting to blow off in that country. But let's not get into all that. Um <laughs> There's no Jexit we can be worried about, really, but maybe. No. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's um, it, it's interesting, though, because of this segregational attitude that exists to this day, there is no IWGP Women's Championship. Yeah. Maybe that's something that could happen in the next five years as New Japan tries to reinvent itself slightly to become more internationalist. And it would probably be a good idea to have something that can maybe you know, have some shows that can be headlined by women that might take some of the stresses off the male wrestlers because the intensity that New Japan male wrestlers are having to wrestle at this point is pretty crazy. DDT, and expand your target audience yeah, as well. DDT has integrated, but DDT is, you know, this absurdist pop, uh, postmodern version of wrestling anyway. Um, so, uh, I get into this flight, I get into these uh, stream of consciousness and then I forget what my original point was. But yes, what I'm saying is, what is interesting though is because there was promotions that were specifically catered towards women wrestlers in Japan, that meant that they weren't just the bottom of the card, almost treated like a freak show like they were on American cards. And I guess in the UK cards with people like Klondike Kates, where the expectation isn't on them to be great. The expectation is for them to have a match that's seen as almost like either a piss break or almost a semi-joke, like the midget wrestling matches, you know? Yeah. There are obviously people like Mildred Burke and the Fabulous Moodle that got a bit more of a, a following, but even then, the Brit- because of that, the, because of the Fabulous Moolah being basically the, the only 
person in, in wrestling in the WWF region and she was in charge of it all, it very much followed her terms and she wrestled her 60s, 70s style of wrestling through to the 80s and 90s. And there was this argument I remember being made that until relatively recently, women's wrestling was always stylistically like a decade behind what was the current style amongst the men. Like in the 60s, they were wrestling a 50s style. In the 70s, they were wrestling a uh, 60s style. And then, you know, coming through to the ni- to the 80s, when there is a fabulous moon on them, like they're still wrestling like the 70s style. Obviously, that means jumping, evolution jumping from bomb yeah, yeah. And now that they wrestle the same styles, but I get, you, you yeah. get where I'm coming from. I get where you're coming from, yeah. but the, that, There were exceptions just... like the Jumping Bomb Angels who brought in some Joshi wrestling to uh, the WWF, but unlike the British Bulldogs who were similarly this state-of-the-art tag team, there weren't teams like the Hart Foundation that could keep up with them. So they they were very popular within their own little sphere, but the WWF really didn't have much to do with them and jettisoned them and the whole women's division, really by the late 80s anyway. Yeah. And that's why Alundra Blaze actually became this great worker because there was literally no work for her in the US at the time she was interested. So she had to go to Japan and become this much better wrestler that was really, didn't have anyone other than Bull Nakano's, the Bull Nakano's, to be able to keep up with her pace when she was then brought into the WWF and like they were going to build a whole promotion around her. You know? It's a tough one um, for Alundra because you're right, like, this is ahead of its time. This was ahead of what other countries were doing when it comes to wrestling. Um, well, you can argue it's ahead of the men. Like Jim Smallman always uh, said in the past, words to the effect of pretty much every cool move in wrestling was originally invented by some 102 pound 19 year old Japanese girl. You know? <laughs> so when we get actually to the match itself, um, they don't even, to sort of um, hop on one of your earlier points we've made about. Um, sexualization you can't say that about their outfits they're, not even slightly or, or they're or they're or how they're built anyway they're built like athletes they both have quite broad shoulders yeah strong neck sensible haircuts <laughs> <laughs> sensible haircuts oh, in sort of one piece bathing suits yeah really and very simplistic designs like yakota's in black and pink asuka's in sort of a teal navy blue combination they're not. They're not there to be because they're not for a male gaze audience. They're for the feet. They're for teenage girls to aspire to. Yeah. Um, and so that there's no need to make them sexualized or to worry. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not saying they're not attractive people, but that's not what's important. Well, no, no, yeah, exactly. That's not what was being focused on. Um, they they just start going hammer and tongs at each other in a sense. Um, training like a fast sort of fast pace at the start, and then we get to the nitty gritty sort of yeah. the structured quite similarly to the way the tiger mask 2 kunyaki kobayashi match starts off with yeah a sudden quick flurry of kicks and strikes and trying to gain momentum early on and then it going to the mat and it goes to the mat for quite an extended period of time it feels like a good near to 10 minutes of the match is spent on the mats oh yeah your coat is pretty much like just grinding away well it starts uh-huh. with asuka dominates to begin with and then yakota gains the advantage i believe yeah, yeah. Uh, Asuka's Yakota's got dominate on the ground with like holds and submissions. Asuka's the first one to dominate, but the, it's Yakota having sort of like this bullying role. I mean, she's slightly bigger, I would say, than Asuka. Really, I, I thought that Asuka was slightly bigger. I um, just want to make clear: Yakota's the one in the pink and black. Asuka's the one in the teal and black. Yeah. To, uh, to my mind, the way I, I mean, I, I haven't got their dimensions in front of me, no. but 
maybe bigger in terms of like phys- not in terms of physicality, but seemed bigger in terms of like presence because she was the bully. Oh. Well, she was the biggest star, Asuka was. Yeah. She got the louder cheers. She got more streamers when the streamers were thrown in. Yeah, and she's yeah. got sort of that sort of... Well, she know, was dialing. one of the big stars. She was one of the, the, the crush girls, so she was the big yeah. name. Not by much, but, you know. She's got, like, sort of a um, bigger presence in terms of... What I mean by that is when she's dominating in the ring, she seems to be conveying the fact that she knows more what she's doing with it. Mm. And that's in like the details by like grinding her elbow into like the, the joints of the knee. Mm. Um, and just the facial expressions of I'm, you know, just going hammer and tongs. I'm really just going to find a way to hurt you as much as physically possible to make sure I win this. Not in terms of like, I hate you in terms of like, I will do everything in my power to put myself ahead kind of thing. I think during it's not, it's not of... malice. It's yeah. more like, uh, sort of like a wily old 30 something center back getting like a cynical foul. Well, the crazy thing is both of these women were probably in their early twenties at this point, because at this time in all Japan women, the mandatory retirement age for these wrestlers was 26 years old. Yeah. Which is crazy to think. Like, you're barely out the young lions at that age if you're lucky in New Japan or All Japan's equivalents, you know? But that's just the way it was. They they, they sort of... The, the theory was that they were, cert, they were cycling through pretty much all the fan base being 13 to 15-year-olds, and you've just got to keep churning out new stars, new stars, so they each have something to follow. It's like looking... how the USSR was churning out gymnasts. Maybe, yeah, you could argue that. But it, I think you could also look at pop acts. It's like when you look back at the spot, you know, recently the Spice Girls have announced a reunion. And when you look back at them, they were only together as an act of any significance for three years. Basically, 97 Wannabe comes out, and by 2000, Jerry's pissed off, and they're doing pretty bland R&B stuff, and then go off to form their own, like, do their own little things, and then momentarily, you know... Well, how long was together for? Really, we were only about three or four years. Take that. I think they were from ninety-two to ninety-six, early ninety-six. It's basically like a univer- You know, your time at university is the time they <laughs> exist. You know, I have a degree and take that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, it is crazy to think. You know, whereas so many acts, it's just that constant. Um, you know, whereas so I guess they are. They are. It's yeah. maybe maybe appropriate that the Crush Girls were pop stars because I guess this is how. The, the all Japan women were treated rather than like vaunted sports stars like the male wrestlers are that will have careers that can go span decades. Yeah, and women at that time were seen as you know you're in and you're out. Then, then you're 26. That's marrying off age and, and have your babies <laughs> or something. You know, that's probably some of the attitude behind it. You know, well potentially back then potentially, um, but. The way it just seems, I know they both seem like the same, they are the same sort of similar ages, everything like that, but just because of the way um, Yokota carries herself, she just seems older in the match. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, more experienced, like, dirtier, but not hatred dirtier. I think it's maybe for the duration of the match. Mouse. For the duration of the match, they hate each other. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you're my opponent and I must beat you. Mm. I must do everything it takes to beat you, not... I'm going to um, beat you because you dragged my dead dad's carcass around <laughs> the earth. Yeah, but the intensity and the and the and the work rate is there throughout. Like like I said, when they're at the mat, they're not resting. These aren't rest holds. They're working. Oh, oh god, no. for every second of the match, trying to escape the hold or suffering from the hold, applying pressure to the holds, modifying the hold to better 
Um, reversing the hold and then reverse, counting it, reversing it. Yeah, because like I say, Asuka's in control at the start, then Yokota claim, gets control through sort of escaping a hold and capturing her in her own um, submission. I think she maybe gets her in sort of an Indian death lock. I might be misremembering that. Um, and then when it finally comes to when they go back to their feet, then the heavy blows start raining in. And also, again, just trying to make notes of um, uh, interesting halt moves. Like, Yokota does a jackhammer at one point, I noticed. Uh, there's a classic figure four leg lock and reversal spots. Um, Asuka hits some really hard leg kicks and uh, attacks. Uh, oh, yeah, one thing I did notice... Um, is that when Yakota in particular kicks out of moves, she doesn't do the traditional thing that you see, which is sort of like jerking your shoulder up off yeah. the mat, like trying to force yourself off or pushing yourself off. She bridges up out of the pin combination. Very amateur wrestling was... style, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if that's just the way that it was done in Joshi Wrestling. Maybe we'll find out as we watch further matches, or if that was just an eccentricity of her move. But it almost, it almost doesn't allow for... Like, Kurt Angle's the best at these, the sort of very last-second kickouts. It's it's like a process that starts before her shoulders go up, almost. Mm. So you kind of see the kickout coming before it comes. Yeah, because she sort of starts from the lower back. and Yeah, yeah I know what you mean. Try and bridge up. Um, I think it's just a way of, like, flexing her strength and, like, just further enunciating and... Enunciating? <laughs> further emphasising... <laughs> The athleticism that she's displaying, basically. Mm. Yeah. But some of the, yeah, you're right, the moment they get back up, um, some of the moves, they're just chucking at each other. We have, like, a jumping sit-out sort of pile driver. Tombstone pile driver. Well, it's interesting, they do it the other way around. Like, one does a tiger driver, but they do it where they go to, like, uh, Yakuta does a tiger driver, but she goes, she lands on her knees instead of doing a sit-out. And then Asuka does a tombstone, but instead of going on her knees, she does a sit-out. Yeah. Scarily, like the, the, you know, the Owen driver of SummerSlam 97. Um... Which is never fun to watch. No. <laughs> uh, so very dangerous potential uh, with these moves. Um, Yakota does roll out of the ring at one point after a, a particular hard attack, and Asuka doesn't follow her up at that point. She allows her to take the can, but that's paid off later on. Yeah. Uh, the next big spot I've got is uh, Asuka doing an airplane spin followed by a giant swing, which was really, really like she gets some s- speeds, her <laughs> knots per second. <laughs> Especially yeah. on the giant swing, are really, really fast. She kicks up the revs like quite mm. mat. Like it, it is something to behold. I mean, not to under, it doesn't under, not to underplay Cesaro at all, but his comparatively just seems a little bit not as good. Mm. But you've got to remember he's like moving much heavier weight. But then again, he's much heavier. So I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like pound for pound, who's better at swinging? I think it's different types. But I was very impressed. I, you know, if. if I think if Cesaro had someone the weight of Linus uh, of, of Jaguar Yakota in a giant swing, he'd be in able space. to get ahead of space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, it goes flying as high as when Ronda Rousey bounced, Mike bounced up in the air uh, just... after a promo. Did you see that one from Love's Botchamania? Job. When Love's someone... job. Wow. have you seen that in Botchamania? One of the endings they got it because she threw the mic down and then on screen you can see it bounce up back up in the air and so this guy just animated it going up and up and up into space and the audio is this is ground control to major tom i didn't see that i thought you were gonna go with uh, ronda's mic died on the way back to its home (laughs) planet 
Um, yeah, any other notes? Oh, so, um, really nasty spot where Asuka gets a lioness, uh, gets J- uh, Yakota, it's a battle of the big cats I noticed as well, Jaguar against the lioness. Uh, Asuka gets her up for his vertical suplex and then just charges and dumps her straight, out of the room. Straight over, like, you like taking that, all of that yeah. on your face. I am not helping you in the slightest here. <laughs> <laughs> You've got no time to correct yourself. Down you go. Because she releases quite late. It's not like, oh, I've just got past, like, vertical and I'm letting go. She is about, like, nearly 45 to 90 degrees Mm. on the way down when she lets go of her. The only suplex spot I've seen that's impressed me more recently was the uh, Cedric Alexander. Was it against Buddy Murphy or Mustafa Ali where they suplexed him out the ring? They landed on the apron, then on the floor, and then he suplexed him on the floor or something like that. Seth Rollins went for the exact same spot and couldn't do it. So yeah. Seth Rollins can't do it. That sort of shows you how impressive how that it is. Difficult it is. Yeah. Um. And then then Asuka follows that up with an attempt at a tope, and I couldn't tell if she'd hit it or not. Uh, the yeah, I. So dark, it was hard to quite tell what had happened. I have it down as a miss. Mm. Uh, to be brutally honest. I don't when know. they both get back to the ring, she's the one that's still, like, in control, as it were. But I guess it's sort of, it would make sense if she missed that it that sort of evens out, given that uh, Jaguar just took a fucking front suplex to the like, mat. Yeah. It kind of needs that missed tope for the other person. Sort for of level it out. Of sort of leveled out, yeah. Uh, and then they get back into the ring, and for the finishing sequence, um, so the German suplexes are being yes, chucked about. very high angles. Which is not what I'm used to when I see Japanese wrestlers, because I've always liked the Japanese style of doing German suplexes, like uh, Yoshihiro, Tajiri, and Yoshihiro's Tajiri and Takayama uh, both did, where they would do quite a low squat and and slam them. So basically the whole of the opponent's back takes the bump, which I like for several reasons. It's a small rise and fall rather than like an arch. Yeah, yeah, it looks cool, and it's also, as far as German suplexes go... Uh, pretty safe. Pretty safe. It gives the a po- the person taking it a lot wider a surface area to absorb the blow. Whereas these are more along the lines of the suplexes that sort of Chris Benoit used to throw, where it's pretty much just neck and shoulder, and that's all that's going to take this this weight. Yeah, looking back when you look at him, the way he was throwing stuff about, you've got to think like he had so little regard for other people and himself sometimes with some of the moves. No wonder things sadly turned out the way they did. Well, we can cross that bridge when we come to. There's at least one Chris Benoit match in this uh, list, so yeah. we can talk more about that when that comes. Um, other notes I had: I thought the refs was quite slow with the count at times. Yeah, I. At least getting down to the counts. Yeah, he seemed to go in stages, didn't he? Yeah. He'd like go to his knees, but not in like. It seemed like he wasn't sure like... it was a pin or not. Yeah, he'd sort of lower himself to his knees rather than like do that drop down to like yeah, the count yeah. that you just see in other uh, like. And I also noticed that because you know again, the thing about these Japanese matches, particularly in this era, is the pomp and ceremony pre-match. And yeah, like, the women wrestlers are given flowers, and the ref was even given flowers. I thought that was uh, you know, <laughs> and then just he did streamers everywhere. Flowers. That yeah. is a, a hell of a lot of streamers. Mm. But again, that points to like the stardom that. Mm. Um, was present in this match, you know. Yeah, well, this was a big, this was a big championship match. Like I said, you know, these are two of the biggest three or four stars of that era in the biggest, the hottest era of Joshi ever at that time. 
Like, they were getting ratings of, like, 12.0 in Japan, and I don't know if that means 12 million or 12% of the population, but to be honest, there's probably not that much difference between the two. Uh, either either one of those figures is ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to say, either statistic impressive. is impressive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, the finish that I saw was it looked like they, 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 they threatened, basically, a superplex to the outside taking happening. Yeah. Which scared the living shit out of me at that point. The closest I've seen to me actually believing they were going to do that. Mm. Um, but instead, it, Asuka hits a front suplex, so Jaguar Yokoto crashes to the mat. Then she follows up with a knee drop off the top, but Yokota dodges it. And then she gets him, gets uh, Asuka up for sort of like a the old Ric Flair shin breaker atomic drop, but instead yeah. she follows through with a bridge from it. So it's sort of like a backdrop suplex, but with the knee captured as well. And that gets to the three count, which was a bit of a surprise in that moment, I thought. I thought it would have been built up more. And like I said, it seemed like Oscar had given, had dished out more of the punishment out of the two. Yeah. So it was a bit surprising that if you go to one, it was through such a decisive manner. Well, maybe that just adds a lot of the shock nature of it. Um, yeah. Because I think you got to have those surprising wins like every now and again. I don't know if it was surprising. But, well, like, it's been interesting. Like, well, no, no, not surprising in terms of who went over. Surprising in how it happened, if yeah. you see what I mean. You've got to have, like, a move, go, ooh, yeah. oh, hello. And, and a backdrop suplex and variants of that, as I've been reading more and more into this, is of, a, is of greater significance in Japan than it is in America. Because the backdrop suplex, that was the hold that Luthez used to defeat um, Ricky Dozan in the first match they have for the World Heavyweight Championship in America. Uh, when Ricky Dozan returned, then it returned to Japan and they had the 60-minute draw, which was watched by just an insane number of people in Japan. Um, so that's why the backdrop suplex still holds a significance in Japan anyway, uh, greater than it does in, in the US or Western wrestling in general. The only Kinda... thing that's probably equivalent to it would be like the pile driver in Memphis or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I was going to say like over the pile driver in Memphis. Or in terms of moves that... Because backdrop, a backdrop suplex in itself isn't like a dangerous looking move. It can be if you do it like in Japan. <laughs> if you do it like in Japan. But if you like... do it like Steve Williams did it, and we'll get to that later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at its core premise, it looks like a fairly like safe move to execute. Mm. Um, but it's one of Shinya Hashimoto's key moves as well. And yeah. But in in America, you've got like loads of people, um, mainly women, and uh, sometimes. But like when people do the, the Lou Fez press, mm. like in itself, it's a very simplistic, easy to do move. But because obviously, I think it's because of the added like threat of the punch, like the punches, and it's usually when someone yeah. blows their top. But you know what I mean? Like that move just seems to have like a reverence to it, not on the same level as like, you're describing, but in terms of like. Oh, oh, hello! This is—it's yes. more than it physically is. Yeah. You know so what I mean. So that might be why, even though it surprised us slightly, the more I'm reading into it, maybe it shouldn't have surprised us too much. Um, so that was the match. Um, what would you? I guess the question that we always ask at the end of this is, would we give it five stars? And I wouldn't. But out of the five matches we've watched, I would say I think this is the best match so far. Um. Without sounding like a horrible copycat, that's pretty much my exact sentiment. It is the best thing we've seen so far. Um, if I had to show someone who I felt had similar preconceptions to me that women's wrestling has been is only good recently, and there was never like a time before, 
where it was like technical based or really good in ring quality. This is the match I would use to disprove that. Mm. Um, it's as I say, it is very close. And uh, you sent me something prior to was recording this um, that Sir Dave of Meltzer himself uh, just tweeted out. Uh, he, where he says himself, uh, many five-star matches back in the decades that we're currently discussing, um, he would only say it like, would be four-star worthy now because such of the way that the quality of wrestling has moved on. Mm. And this very much fits into that mould. Yeah, I think if we watched it in 1986, it would have blown our minds. Yeah, um, we've sort of been spoiled by yeah. another like 22 years of content. No, 32 years of content. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But that's not to say... You put this match on any card today, it wouldn't look out of place. No, no, it, it could roll now, happily. Yeah. I mean, I would put it, you know, right up there with... with I mean, Dave Meltzer has yet to give a, a WWE or North American women's match five stars. He did give the Becky Lynch-Charlotte Flair last woman standing match at Evolution four and three quarter stars. <sighs> I believe he gave Sasha Banks versus Bailey four and a half stars, and that's a match I would personally go five. Yeah, um, for what it's worth. Yeah, but, I'd go five, but maybe I'm looking through rose tinted glasses because that's when I was. That's two characters I was very attached to at the time. Yeah, yeah, and it just felt significant in its moment. Although, you know, the fact that then at Evolution Sasha Banks and Bailey were stuck in a six woman mid card tag team match seemed very insulting but we'll, we'll talk about that on another episode for some yeah. maybe say that for our year in review or something else we, we we need to do an episode about women's involvement in wrestling but i'm also very aware it shouldn't just be two dudes talking <laughs> about that you know what i mean and now for our latest conversation on diversity let's talk to these <laughs> four old white dudes <laughs> what's that from probably oh. snl about the republicans or something like that I think I'm quoting Bojack Horseman. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of these. I think this is the only match we see with Jaguar Yakota because she actually has to retire at the end of this year, 1986, through injuries. Uh, she does come back in the middle. Not because she's 26. Uh, sorry? Not because she's 26, she actually had injuries. No, she had injuries, but she was probably reaching that point anyway. But, you were, that, but to be honest... You were starting when, to, and you'll know the title to this, because yeah. I don't, and it's been bugging me throughout this in the back of my head. It, you're making um, Josie Wrestling sound like that Mark Hamill film, where they all have crystals in their hand and get it's blown up on them. It's Michael York. I know what you're talking about. Logan's Run. Is that Logan's Run? The yeah. one where they get blown up on their 30th birthday? They don't get blown up. I think they get killed. Like, they have to be taken somewhere and executed. No, because there's, like, a scene where they, they go see the guys that turn 30 and they, like, sort of end up spiraling into the sky and, and yeah, blowing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not, like, something, like, this innate in them. They have to go to this place to be blown No, it's, up. it's not spontaneous yeah, combustion. Because that's the whole point about Logan's run. He runs away. Uh, I remember there was, there's was. there been talk of remaking that for years and years and years. Genuinely, like at one point, Brian Singer was going to direct it. Um, and the less uh, Michael Sing Brian Singer being around younger people, specifically men, the better as far as I'm concerned. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the, 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 I remember telling this to my mate, because my mate loves sci-fi, dystopian sci-fi and all that sort of stuff. It's like his favourite genre. And I was, because the premise I'd heard, because back then it was, like in the original it was 30, that in the remake, the cut-off age was going to be 21. Um, my mate said, so that means everyone on Earth is an arsehole. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> bit ageist, but yeah, <laughs> I well, take his point. To be fair, at that point, we were only like 24 or so when I said that. <laughs> so there was a certain amount of self-awareness in there. Um, oh, dear. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more Joshi. Like I said, um, Yokota unfortunately had to retire at the end of this year due to injuries. Uh, taking sit-out Tombstone pile drivers kind of helped the matter. Or s- front suplexes to the outside of the ring or anything like that. I will uh, cushion did... this with my face. Yes, she did come back. She did come back in the mid '90s, and like a lot of wrestlers in Japan, just split off and formed her own promotion. And it was actually the formation of these alternative women's promotions that made all Japan abandon their 26-year-old cutoff because a lot of these women in, that were 26 were like, "I'm 26, I still have value, goddammit," and would go off and wrestle in other promotions. Um, and that's what led to maybe another part of the, the wave. And unfortunately, All Japan Women did end up dying as a promotion in 2005 at 44 years old. Um, they So, yeah, they were born in 1971, a year before All Japan and New Japan were formed. Um, and like I said, it's because women had to be their own in their own world. They had to have main event caliber matches. So they had to have the best match on the card had to involve women. You couldn't so, rely on being yeah. a woman because everyone else in the promotion was also a woman. So you see, Simon, segregation can work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like I'm in a weather spoons. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit means Brexit, goddammit. <laughs> English Jaeger for all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so and, and these women were such big stars that when the when the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame was created in 1996, Yokota was one of the original class of 96. Founding members. Founding members, one of 122, I think. Good Lord, that Hall of Fame ceremony must have took days. Yeah, very much so. Um, And one of the few women to enter it at that point. And like in in the tribute to her, in the description that I found, basically Dave Meltzer described it, said at that point she was unquestionably seen as one by those in the know as one of the best workers in wrestling male or female and maybe she was the first female to be considered along those lines you know yeah Uh, whereas now it's really like well it might be my first opening uh question depends what how the how the year goes on at the time of recording um, but right now, if you were to make me cast my ballot for wrestler of the year for 2018, I think Becky Lynch would be top of my list. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and that might be the first time we would have that be the case in, in North America, whereas in Japan, it was already there 30 years ago. Completed it, mate. And, and Linus Asuka was also inducted into the Hall of Fame three years later in 1999. So these are two Hall of Fame caliber wrestlers having a great, great match. That in its time, I'm sure, absolutely warranted five stars. Yeah. It's it's weird to think like, at the time that this this little part of Japan that was... Because I can't imagine this match was seen by many people across the globe at no, its it time. It was seen by a lot of people in Japan. And that was yeah. all that mattered at that point. It was all domestic markets. Nor has it since. But you look at how good it is and you just think... If this is what everyone in the world was doing, women's wrestling-wise, back in 1985, where would women's wrestling be now? You can't help but think that. Yeah. Can't help but armchair quarterback, kind of like, you know, their fantasy book, fantasy thing about the whole thing. 
Well, it's unfortunate that Joshi's never had a time where it's been as hot. I mean, the stardom promotion now has been a place where lots of these great stars, like we say, Kyrie, Kyrie Sane, Io Shirai, Asuka are all coming from, and also wrestlers like Tony Storm and uh, others I can't think off the top of my head, but there are plenty of Western American British wrestlers that are going out to Japan and becoming better wrestlers because of the possibilities that stardom and now also in like promotions like Shimmer, Pro Wrestling Eve and the like are actually giving women these opportunities that Yokota and Asuka were amongst the first to really take it and run with it. I want to say like Nikki Cross as well. She spent probably time in Japan. she almost certainly will have spent time in Japan. Yeah, yeah, and like just, I think it adds depth to her. Mm. As a character, like well, depth to all of them. Tony Storm, yeah. especially. I'm, I'm, yeah. The more and more I see of Tony Storm, the more and more I love watching Tony oh, Storm wrestle. She's going to be a mega star for years to come. I mean, she's yeah. only like 22, isn't she, or 23? Or 21, I think. Something, yeah, like, something insane. 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 But yeah, uh, that's it for this episode. We're staying in Japan for our next episode, which will be as close as we've had so far to a wild interpromotional match as Jumbo Saruta and Genichiro Tenru. Defend the honor of all Japan against the invading army of Riki Choshu and Yoshiaki Yatsu. Uh, looking forward to talking about that with yourself, Simon. Our first encounter with Jumbo Saruta and Tenru. Um, two men that will have several other five-star matches very soon after this. So they'll be regulars in this show. Um, but until then, if you want to get in touch with me, it's Lorcan Mullen, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple N for November. And that is my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram handles. You put an at gmail.com at the end of it. That's my email address. Find me, read my book, listen to my podcast. Go. Simon. Right. My name is Simon. Simon Cross, obviously. Uh, I'm Simon Cross Free on Twitter. So known because for the third week warning, I forgot to think of a thing to say what the free stands for. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. And uh, if you want to email me, simoncross91 at gmail.com. Um if you, you know, like using such outdated modes of communication. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just send a carrier pigeon? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, semaphore flags. Uh. <laughs> but until... I'm, sure, I'm surprised I haven't made semaphore emojis, actually. <coughs> it all comes back. Like It'll become world. one of them things, like how steampunk's big now. Semaphore yeah. will become big in, like, 30 <laughs> years' time. Guarantee it. We have a show email address of lmtyspod at gmail.com. But until our next episode in a few days' time, thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time. Until the next time. Hey, I'm looking up for my star girl. I guess I'm stuck in this mad world. The things that I want to say. But you're a million miles away. And I was afraid when you cared. The intergalactical friends, babe I wonder why, I wonder why You never asked me the same So wouldn't you like to come with me? Seven the sun as it starts to rise Well, your gravity's making me dizzy Girl, I got